I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hey, we're going to be talking a lot about sexual violence in this series. There's also some language. If either of those things are upsetting for you, please take care while you're listening. I had bad dreams about Weinstein during that period. I had nightmares. You know, I was spending so much of my time on this story and and reading their accounts that it really it really affected me as well. Deirdre Foley Mendelson is a senior editor at the New Yorker magazine. Specifically, she's my editor at the New Yorker magazine. At one point, I also, in the reporting process, reading the transcript of one of the women's interviews, she described seeing him uh, get out of a car and go into his house. And I realized, reading it at that moment, that he was, in fact, my neighbor uh, and lived like half a block down from me. And I walked by his townhouse in New York every day, going to and from work while we were working on this story. It's sort of a shiver. Yeah, good thing he didn't know about you (laughs) until the very end when you were on those calls. And quite possibly still wouldn't recognize you, though you played this incredibly important role in his life, ultimately. I'm sure he wouldn't. One of the interesting things about being an editor is that you're always sort of the person behind the curtain. This is the Catch and Kill podcast. I'm Ronan Farrow. We're living in a precarious moment when it comes to the free press. An active shooter situation unfolding inside the newsroom. A year after the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. According to the journalist, she was ushered into another room where Pompeo unleashed a profanity-laden tirade at her. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. A lot of my reporting has focused on how the media this incredibly important tool for creating accountability that's actually protected in the Constitution can sometimes breach the public's trust and how the truth can get buried as a result. Today, instead, we're going to look at how it's supposed to work, at the incredibly meticulous, hardworking people on the front lines of that fight, people who make sure the truth doesn't get buried, many of whom you've probably never heard of like the ones who rescued the Weinstein story at The New Yorker and stood up to repeated efforts to kill it. The editors, like Deirdre Foley Mendelson and her boss, David Remnick. It was pretty clear that something stank, deeply stank. And the magazine's lawyer, Fabio Bertoni. One of the joys of my working life is sending fuck you letters. 
and its fact-checkers, like Tammy Kim. Doing this level of fact-checking just kind of tests you in every way. And Fergus McIntosh. I'm not sure we really had hours <laughs> at the peak of the Weinstein story. It was kind of like sleeping or not sleeping. The way they shepherded my reporting to publication says a lot about the power of the free press and what it takes to keep it trustworthy. I'm from Santa Cruz, California. I grew up in an academic family on a college campus in a surfing town where I didn't surf and wasn't blonde. Deirdre Foley Mendelssohn started in journalism early with a college internship at The Atlantic. She spent the next few years working at different magazines. About a decade ago, she even spent a little time as an assistant editor at The New Yorker. In early 2017, she came back as a senior editor, but the most junior of senior editors. So I was a little bit worried that everyone was still going to see me as, as the kid around the office. She'd only been in the job a few months when her boss, editor-in-chief David Remnick, came into her office to talk about a potential story he wasn't sure about. Remnick came into my office uh, relatively late one evening, and he sat down on my couch. David wasn't new to the Weinstein story. If you listened to episode five of this podcast, you'll remember that one of his writers, Ken Oletta, tried to crack the story of Weinstein's alleged sexual predation in 2002 and came up short. He said that Ken Oletta had, had written a profile of Harvey Weinstein a number of years ago and that I should go back and read it. Oletta had heard rumors about uh, sexual assault. Um, they hadn't been able to get anyone to go on the record, but, but that he, you know, believed that there was a there there. What did Remnick seem like when he came to you and had that conversation with you? He wasn't making any commitments yet, but he was clearly curious. I suppose he was... He was his normal self. You think my job is saying, we need a 14,000-word profile on an Icelandic potter. I'm the 60-year-old guy pushing for much poppier stuff, otherwise we're going to die. You know I have the same sensibility. I, I want know, those numbers. I know, I know. Uh, I know. Don't, but, uh, don't tell anybody. David Remnick grew up in a middle-class family in New Jersey. His father was a dentist. My mother had a case of multiple sclerosis by the time she was, I don't know, 30, and I was six. And my father suddenly had Parkinson's. Journalism was something, by the way, I thought would get me out of the house and out of this small town. What were your first experiences of journalism? I completely wrote and edited the high school newspaper. I wrote must maybe half the paper and, and put it together with a, an X-Acto knife and so on at my kitchen table. He interned at the Washington Post and later went back to work there. It's a pretty heady place to serve your apprenticeship at the Washington Post in the 80s. I ran into one of your editors who was praising your sports reporting not that long ago. <laughs> well, they asked me, you know, do you know anything about sports? And I knew that a job was contingent. I said, I said well, yeah, of course. But, you know, I knew what, what any person knows about sports if you watch on Sundays. I was a Knicks fan or, you know, it's not like I was an expert. Sports led to features and then to an assignment in Moscow. My wife, Esther Fonda, we, we got married. And we went off to Moscow, and she reported for the New York Times, and I reported for the Washington Post. That's such a cool love story. It was kind of like Pat and Mike. Yeah. <laughs> he came back to take care of his ailing parents. 
and eventually got a call about writing for The New Yorker. I joined The New Yorker as a, as a writer, and I was a very, very, very happy writer for The New Yorker for five, six years. And then, in 1998, he became The New Yorker's editor-in-chief, and has remained since. Because we chose to become uh, digital in many ways, we had to experiment and figure out who we were. There's got to be more reporting. I'll tell you what I do want. I want some metabolism in The, in the New Yorker. Here's the thing. The New Yorker is a lean operation. It has a small staff, and it doesn't have bureaus around the world like a newspaper. It can only take on so much. Having come from a newspaper and knowing what kind of equipment and how they're kitted out, we don't really have the same uh, resources uh, or number of people to throw at a big story in the same way. Tell me a little bit about what your job is at The New Yorker. Like, what does a day look like for you? The crux of it is, and where really where your story comes in, is saying yes and no. A lot of pieces come in over the transom from freelancers far and wide. The volume of it is a lot. You live in fear of missing something good, but on the other hand, you have to be reasonably efficient to get about getting an answer to people. And that brings us back to August 2017. Hey, Ronan, it's David Remnick. Um, hmm. I'll be back. I'm just going to go meet my son for a quick lunch. I'll be back by about 2.15. That's a voicemail from the first time David Remnick called me. All that year, I'd been working on the Harvey Weinstein story for NBC News. But the network, which was receiving legal threats from Weinstein, had ordered me to stop reporting. I'd called Ken Oletta, who'd introduced me to David. I didn't know who this guy was. I didn't know who this guy was. And, I, and all what used to be called print people are a little snotty about television people. But David likes a big story. He agreed to meet and asked Deirdre to join. I said, look, I, I need you to help me on this because I don't know what this is. And I thought she could help us out and see what this is, think it through with me. Think through even the decision whether to... Of course. Do anything about it. Of course. I mean, look, I know in the end, yes or no is in my hands. He told me that you uh, were coming in the next day and that you had some new reporting and that we were going to hear you out. And so I spent actually a lot of the night reading various profiles of Weinstein. It seemed clear that, that, that there was something there and that everyone was just scared to kind of come out and say it. That's how, on the morning of August 16th, I wound up in a New Yorker conference room on the 38th floor of One World Trade Center pitching the story to David and Deirdre. I was super calm. Yeah, you were really nervous. You were, re you were nervous and floating out in Nowheresville with a story. And you could tell that you were, you were really pitching hard. And, and there was a relentlessness in your desire to, to get the facts out there and to, to tell us everything that was in there and to make sure that we were absorbing it. God, I sound exhausting. <laughs> You were a little exhausting. <laughs> and of course, I remember you playing us the recording um, and outlining the reporting that you had, which seemed significant. That's the recording of Weinstein appearing to admit to a sexual assault during a 2015 police sting operation. You've heard it a few times on the show. I had played the tape at NBC, where executives seemed, at best, ambivalent about it. Deirdre had a different reaction. I felt, you know, 
how it would be to be in a hallway alone with him, not in contact with the police who were supposed to be, you know, intervening uh, when it got to this point and how scared she must have been. And then, of course, there was the admission, but I felt that the whole tape was really powerful. I thought that it was a story that needed to get out and that there was material there already that was strong enough that the world should see it. At the time, I was still fighting to get the story on air at NBC. David made it clear that if I lost that fight, he was interested. The the notion that you didn't have a story coming through the door is nonsense. But he didn't make any commitments that day. I left the New Yorker's offices with a maybe and an offer to stay in touch with Deirdre. And you were in a sensitive position at that point because we hadn't greenlit the story. So you weren't under contract. It was an uncertain time for the reporting. Soon after that meeting, NBC finally said they didn't want to be associated with the story in any way. And Weinstein and his intermediaries were beginning to threaten legal action, saying they knew I no longer had the protection of a news organization. You weren't yet one of our writers officially, so you uh, weren't kind of under the magazine's legal cover yet. Uh, And I think that that left you very uh, alone in the world. More women were still going on the record, and I didn't know whether to cancel those interviews till I had a news outlet that would protect me. I called Deirdre. You'd set up that one interview, and you weren't sure whether to go out and do it, and I told you not to cancel it, to go out and do it. Then she did something unusual. I wasn't associated with the magazine yet, but she called the New Yorker's general counsel anyway to see if he'd talk to me. That would be Fabio Bertoni. I got a call from an editor at The New Yorker who said, Ronan's going to call you in a minute. He needs some help. I wanted to be a journalist, and I went to uh, journalism school, and I did a dual degree with the law school because I thought that law would help my journalism. When I was still a law student, I did some clinics where I represented people in housing court, and I stopped someone from getting evicted, and it had sort of that immediate instant gratification and it was sort of like a mainline drug like I did this thing in the world and it mattered in someone's life Um, and uh, and that really for me was the power of being a lawyer you wanted to help people I wanted well I wanted to to help people um, but I don't I don't want to make myself out to be a saint it was um, I'll do that for you (laughs) don't worry about it After law school, Fabio worked at a few firms and then at American Lawyer magazine, vetting articles. The bulk of my job is reading articles prior to publication and determining if there are legal risks and how best to support the journalism to make sure that um, we don't expose ourselves to unnecessary legal risk. If we were to get sued, what would be our defenses? Of course, in August 2017, it wasn't Fabio's responsibility to do any of that analysis for the Weinstein story. He called me anyway. I made it clear to you in that conversation, I don't represent you at this point, I'm I'm a lawyer for the magazine, and I'm not your lawyer, but uh, if I were, (laughs) these are the issues that I would advise you to be concerned about, and these are the issues that I would advise you not to worry so much about. And it made such a huge difference in my life and in the life of the story that you agreed to get on the phone because I was paralyzed by the pressures of all of these legal threats coming at me. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. You were in this 
position where you didn't have an institution behind you. And, uh, and there's a lot of reporters that don't. And, and if, if I'm at an institution as a lawyer and I'm, um, able to use the power of that institution to protect a journalist who's doing important work, then, you know, what else is the institution for but to, but to do that? Fabio said he thought going ahead with the pending interviews was worth the risk. People threaten prior to publication, but they're unlikely to sue prior to publication because a lawsuit would be public and they would be publicizing the very facts that they want to keep confidential. You know, I felt strongly that they're not going to sue you and expose this whole story. I had sat in rooms with these NBC executives and even uh, the lawyers, you know, uh, Kim Harris and uh, Susan Weiner, and heard them sort of parrot Weinstein's argument on this. You know, if you're interviewing people who have non-disclosure agreements, that could expose us to all of this uh, legal jeopardy. I mean, I thought then that it's silly, and I think it, it's proven to be uh, a silly argument. Both Fabio and Deirdre had the same message. You never stop reporting. And Weinstein acting the way he was acting, going through all these intermediaries uh, in this threatening manner, only made it clearer that there was fire where there was all this smoke uh, and that he was he was scared of what you had. I did keep reporting and staying super chill with Deirdre. I've never had a reporter call me as many times a day as you did. (laughs) I apologize for that. It was an intense time. It was intense. On August 25th, I sent in a draft version of the story. And on September 5th, I went to the New Yorker offices to hear their final decision. You came in and you did seem a little, desperate is the wrong word. You were pitching. You were pitching a story, um, and you were pitching a set of facts, and you were making making a case for your journalism. There was nothing that was going to be able to talk you out of your completely understandable nervous state. He put you at ease while at the same time asking really tough questions, and there were questions I wanted to know the answers to, too. We sort of grilled you on a, on a bunch of those issues. Um, what are the foundational elements here? What are the facts? What do we have? What... What do we know for sure? Um, and, and you had it. There's been a lot of public discussion about what I had when The New Yorker took on the story. NBC has repeatedly claimed that no women were willing to go on the record, that that only happened after the magazine came on board. I was very aware of the on-the-record, off-the-record issue because when Ken Oletta tried to do the story um, in 2015, we didn't have people on the record. So... Um, when you walked in the door with people on the record, I felt like, okay, let's go. This is, this is it. From and the get-go. From the get-go. From day one with The New Yorker, um, this was a story that, that was defensible. What do you make of a media outlet pushing the narrative that there were no names in that story when you saw that there were? I can't fathom it. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's strange. David decided to proceed with the story the network had passed on. But I think we left the meeting and you were like, so are we doing it? And I said, (laughs) yes, we're doing it. After the break, The New Yorker takes on Harvey Weinstein again. 
I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Fergus and I were called into our boss, Peter Camby's office. Peter's the longtime fact-checking director and senior editor there. And they said, there's a story coming in from Ronan. There's a lot of mystique around The New Yorker. And some of that is due to its legendary fact-checking process. And, of course, me being allergic to celebrity, I was skeptical. Uh, but, wait, like, what is this? Why are there two checkers on this? What is this, you know, what are the stakes? That's Tammy Kim now a prolific writer and formerly a fact-checker at the magazine. I grew up on the West Coast um, in the Seattle area, and I've been out here since college, basically. Um, as you mentioned in the book, I was a lawyer for a number of years before turning to this dying industry that we're in. And um, yeah, I write about sort of domestic labor and economics, and then also Korean politics and some arts and culture. I did not know who you were. Uh, excuse me for my How could ignorance. <laughs> and that's Fergus McIntosh, also a fact checker at the magazine. I was born in London. I grew up near Oxford. I did not move very far for university, but then I fell in love with a Long Islander and moved out to New York. <laughs> um, and I've been in the city for five years now and at the New Yorker for four and a half. With Weinstein's legal threats encroaching and his history of trying to preemptively interfere with reporting at other outlets, the magazine made a decision to keep the project pretty discreet, even internally. We just knew that there was a piece by Ronan Farrow that they weren't going to say what it was until it was assigned. And I'd never experienced that before. It was kind of a top secret thing. Like, obviously, we weren't supposed to talk about the fact that we were working on it to anyone. But once we understood the stakes, I think we were very happy to work together. Fergus has a reputation for being one of the most diligent checkers. So I think we also agreed that it was probably good to have a, a woman checker, which isn't to say a man can't do it. And Fergus did it incredibly well. Um, but, you know, there are these sensitive moments. Tammy and Fergus were essentially the story's first line of defense. They were going to be tasked with recontacting all my sources, corroborating their stories, looking for more evidence, and going over every word and number and claim in that piece in hair-splitting detail. My first reaction was, wow, this is something that will have an enormous impact on this guy's life and on the lives of the other people who are named in the story. And we, we can't fuck this up. Because if anything is wrong with it, not only will it be embarrassing and bad for the institution and bad for you and bad for me, it will be really bad for these other people. They got started in mid-September. Tammy printed out a draft of the piece and pulled out a mechanical pencil. To, like, circle all of the names and make lots of notes in the margins about, you know, I have to read this article, I need to call this person, blah, blah, blah. And you sort of make a list of all of those things that you need to do and the sources you need to call. She makes it sound routine, but that last step, calling the sources, was actually incredibly challenging. Tammy and Fergus had to walk this very fine line. They needed to be thorough and skeptical, but they also needed to be sensitive. I think that compassion is probably the most important aspect of working on a story like this. 
compassion not meaning just being warm and fuzzy, but really trying to enter someone's head and heart and feel with them. That's what half your brain is doing. And the other half is sitting back and saying, what about that? What about that? Mm -hmm. It's not a skill you necessarily think about when you hear someone's a fact checker. But often, getting to the truth requires developing a level of intimacy with sources. Sources the checker might be talking to for the first time. I definitely became more sensitive to is kind of too small a word. Um, mm. I, I understood in a much deeper way what had happened to people who I know who have had things happen to them. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask about that. Did it did it manifest in your personal life at all? Yeah, definitely. Because you have to go over it in a clinical way, like while yes. being sensitive, and you don't do that in a normal conversation with yeah. even your closest loved ones. I'd heard some stories like this from people I know, and I was very sympathetic and outraged for them, but I didn't really feel it quite so deeply, and I mm-hmm. did it in a new way after working on these stories. The fact-checking process also involves finessing a lot of language. In a story with these stakes, that can lead to some pretty fierce debates. Weinstein's team was pushing very, very hard for us not to use the term rape, to use assault. Uh, and, um, And it seemed that that was the direction things were going. There was deliberation inside the magazine. Yeah, I think there were probably a couple of colleagues who maybe were skeptical or thought readers would be skeptical if we characterized certain acts that way. There was no doubt that the allegations in the story fit the legal definition of rape. But would using the term be sensationalist? Being cautious about something isn't an excuse for fudging it Mm -hmm. or for not telling the truth about it. Right. Being cautious about it means being really sure about what happened. Yeah. If you're sure about what happened. Call it what it is. Yeah. The checkers weighed in. So did Deirdre. So I, um, after talking to Tammy and Fergus, I, it was quite late at night, I think, and I went up to Remnick's office and, you know, I was still pretty new and I was kind of nervous about going in there, but I took a deep breath and I went into his office and I said, these women call it rape themselves. It fits the legal definition of rape. We will be whitewashing it and undermining their own voices if we do not call it rape and we won't be calling a thing what it is which is so important in this moment. Deirdre said well we need to call things by their proper name. And I was expecting some resistance because he ultimately has to take responsibility for everything that's in the magazine everything that's in the piece and that's a huge amount of responsibility to be on his head. And I don't mind telling you that when you're told that by a woman while you're having this kind of serious discussion and a woman of enormous intelligence and integrity and not inclined to sensationalize or anything the like, you listen. Instead, he leaned back and said, okay. (laughs) Now, the stakes of calling it that are high, but they were right. And we made that change. So we were working very long hours and it was I think everyone actually involved missed important life things. You missed your sister's wedding. I missed my my mother-in-law's birthday. Fabio missed his children's college tour. Uh, 
because we were we were rushing to get the story out and to make sure that we we got it right and that we made it as strong as possible. As we closed in on publication, things got intense. We were contacting sources all over the world, and so sometimes you would get a call or a text at two or three or four a.m. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Yes. You know? I, I'm totally ready to right, talk to and you. You're ready, <laughs> and you pull out your sheet. There was a lot of kind of carrying around this story. <laughs> um, at the same time, I need to sleep. Um, yeah, and yeah, uh, if I if I at least don't, then I um, get stupid. So This is why I'm so dumb all the time, you guys. <laughs> I haven't slept in three years. Uh. <laughs> Deirdre holed up in her office for a lot of long nights to work on drafts of the story. That building uh, turns off the air circulation system at a certain point in the evening and on the weekends. So we were not only in a sort of pressure cooker to get the story out, but we were in a a hot house, more or less. There were a bunch of weekends where we were there just sweating, eating terrible snack food, (laughs) uh, fighting over which lines would stay in and which wouldn't. (laughs) I I think one early draft of the book had uh, a description of our kind of pit stains that ultimately seemed too gross and ungracious (laughs) to keep in. (laughs) Too graphic, too graphic. Also, I had literally zero idea how to write a New Yorker story. You hadn't written for us before and hadn't written all that much before. You know, Mm -hmm. you were more of a a television uh, reporter and journalist. Oh, I was completely Um, green and new to it. And so I think that that made us an interesting pair in that uh, I was still, I was the most junior of the senior editors in terms of the time that I had been there and in terms of my age and so on. We were kind of thrown into the deep end together. Yeah. While Deirdre and David were teaching me the art of the diaresis, I hope I pronounced that right, outside pressures were mounting. In the weeks before publication, Harvey Weinstein turned his legal threats from me to the magazine. On October 2nd, Weinstein sent his first threat letter directly to The New Yorker. It came from Charles Harder, the lawyer best known for representing Hulk Hogan in the case that ended Gawker. The letter called any pending reporting on Weinstein defamatory, and it said because my sister had made an allegation of sexual abuse, I wasn't impartial on the subject. That was just craziness. And crazily unfair. And I'm just, I wasn't hearing it. I was just not going to get into it with them about your sister that was unconscionable and was just not on. In 99.9% of cases, the lawyer on the other side knows this argument is bullshit. That's Fabio, the New Yorker lawyer. And it bothers me that they would assert a bullshit argument. Um, I also feel very um, protective of my journalists. Some of the attacks on you were so outrageous that um, I find them personally offensive. There were other peculiarities. He claimed to have written assurances that NBC agreed that they would not do any stories relating to the allegations contained in your reporting. NBC has denied the charge. As a lawyer for a journalistic outlet, I don't know why anyone would ever agree that they would never do a story. I mean, again, we've not done stories, but we would never promise a source we're never going to do it. Harder's letter was 11 pages long. Fabio's response was shorter. Dear Mr. Harder, I write in response to your letter dated October 4th, 2017, to David Remnick and me regarding a possible article by Ronan Farrow concerning Harvey Weinstein. With regard to your statements about the independence and ethics of Mr. Farrow, 
We find the issues you raise to be without any merit whatsoever. Sincerely, Fabio Bertoni. I'm happy to have that fight in court about whether someone who has a family history of sexual abuse can report about sexual abuse, fine. You know, that was a moment where my job felt like it got easier because this is the best you can come up with. Um, you know, yes, we'll, we'll be sure to preserve all our documents related to your stupid claims. <laughs> <laughs> There was one more person we needed to talk to, the subject himself, Harvey Weinstein. We had a big group call where it was Weinstein and several lawyers. We were all in David Remnick's office, and Harvey Weinstein was on the phone. On speaker. On speaker. Large portions of the calls were off the record, but other parts were explicitly on the record. And there were still other moments for which no ground rules were set. Weinstein's tactics were a lot like what you've heard in the police tape. He would play nice. He would say that he sort of understood what we did as journalists, how much he respected us. He expected it to just go away with a call to Remnick. It was clear that he believed that he was speaking to a peer where he hadn't really been speaking to a peer otherwise. And that, you know, if he just said, come on, gentlemanly agreement, let's make this go away. Right. He would be able to, and that kind of sent a shudder down my spine. Because he had ruled the way he wanted to rule for a long time. When that didn't work, he would he would wheedle uh, and sort of beg. He he would threaten. We're gonna see you into the ground. You're gonna never work again. Your magazine is going down. Ronan Farrow <laughs> yeah, is a right. fraud. You know, it was more the kind of uh, Looney Tunes hammer than the little chisel. At moments, he would deny everything. He'd say that because he'd remained in contact with some women, that was evidence that all his interactions with them were consensual. At other moments, he seemed to be admitting to the behavior. Once he got confused about who was making an allegation against him, and actually started going into details about a claim we hadn't even heard about and weren't covering. At one point, he seemed to make an admission, and the line went dead. (laughs) And I will bet all the money in my pocket and possibly the destinies of many people whom I love, that the reason that call got cut off was that Harvey's lawyers pressed the button to do so because they knew he was, he was going too far. Do I know that for a fact? I don't. But, um, you know, the phone company is not that bad. You know, the, the universal sign for shut up from lawyer to client in those situations is this, right? Putting your hand here in a hush gesture. And it's just a gentle gesture. It's just a signal to your client to shut the fuck up right now. (laughs) And we reconnected and they were like, oh, did we lose you? Sometimes it seemed like Weinstein's team didn't cut the line fast enough. He shouted, he attacked the character of the sources in the story. Once he appeared to threaten one of the women, a former temp employee of the Weinstein Company named Emily Nestor. Yeah, I remember him saying, we like her, she'd better be careful. Mm. Maybe it wasn't precisely that, but mm-hmm. uh, I think we all just sort of looked at each other in shock um, because it was also the way in which he said it and the tone was incredibly menacing. Uh, and it, And I think David even asked, is that a threat? <laughs> In the end, Weinstein didn't spend much time denying the individual allegations in the piece. What they offered was a single statement, which you've heard at the beginning of every episode of this podcast. 
Harvey Weinstein denies all allegations of non-consensual sex. David Remnick had had a conversation just like this in 2002 while Ken Oletta was working on the story. I really remember Harvey Weinstein, his shoulders slumped over, he's sitting there and he's, and he's enraged. He, he, his sense of offense and being wronged, it was like watching um, some kind of boiler about to explode. But this time was different. He seemed to me more, a little more defeated. I'm telling you from experience, Ronan, that could have gone a hundred times worse and louder. And it didn't. It didn't. One of the things that was so meaningful to me on those calls was that it was the first time in this reporting process that I'd had someone actively defend me. Well, it wasn't just me. I mean, you're in a room with, with if I remember the room, uh, Deirdre is sitting there, and Fabio Bertoni is, is sitting there. I'm there. Maybe there were probably checkers in the room, too, if Some I of the calls, yes. Um, and you had the most powerful thing of all. You had your manuscript which had been fact-checked thoroughly. Do you guys remember the night before the story published? Uh, well, I think that we still had work to do in the morning. I think that's um, right. So yeah. we didn't feel like it was... In the morning, we pushed the button. It was right. like, yeah. hopefully in the morning, we pushed the button, <laughs> but we've got a few hours Read of work. Read it two more times before that. The grim task of counting up the different kinds of sexual assault and how right. we got all the numbers right, and are any of them overlapping, and are we counting anyone twice? Right, yeah. you were double and triple checking things all through. Yeah. And we were saying, go away, leave us alone. We're right, and you, yeah. were, you were there from <laughs> we're dawn till then. I think that's probably right. Still checking. The day we published, I stayed at the office until 3 or 4 a.m., and then I came back before dawn and watched dawn sort of come up over the Statue of Liberty and the tip of Lower Manhattan, which I could see from my office, and just was waiting for the final copy edit to come back before we pressed publish. It was a sort of calm before the storm. The reporting never really stopped. About an hour before we planned to publish, one more source agreed to go on the record. At about 10.45, we all gathered around a computer. I know there was this moment where, you know, they were about to push the button to publish it on the web, and you wanted to have everyone over at a group shot. You and the checkers and maybe Deirdre got together for a little snapshot, or whatever the hell it's called with your camera and your phone now, picture. Quick fact check, it's called a selfie. And I kind of broke it up and I said nah, we don't, no 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 and David was like mm, nope not doing that no no congratulations no no high fives in the newsroom at 10:47 a.m. we hit publish and I think we really weren't sure how the world was going to react the New Yorker releasing its 10-month-long investigation, which includes an audio recording of an encounter between model Ombra Gutierrez and Weinstein. I spent a lot of the day just trying to sort of monitor the reaction and see what readers thought and, you know, hear from you how the women who were in it reacted. And I was just amazed at both 
how positive the reactions of the sources were and how quickly it, it sort of blew up. People around the world are coming forward on social media to share their stories of sexual abuse. They're inspired by the many women who have accused movie mogul Harvey Weinstein of sexual harassment and worse. Dominoes started falling of, of other women coming forward, of people who had had stayed silent and condemning Weinstein coming out and saying this is awful. But what's really chilling is to read further down where more than a dozen staff members say they'd either witnessed these incidents or knew of them. Of, you know, uh, criminal proceedings uh, or investigations launching that it blossomed into something much, much bigger, much faster than I think we ever could have expected. It was surreal. What Ronan Farrow has written for The New Yorker pushes the story even further and, and makes the open secret nature of this alleged behavior all the more unfathomable. I was feeling very amped up about what it is to exist as a woman in this particular moment. What do you remember about Publication Day? <laughs> Relief. Relief. Eventually, we'd learned just how far Weinstein had gone to try to stop the disclosure of the allegations against him, including hiring private spies from an Israeli firm called Black Cube to track journalists and sources. Black Cube? I mean, you got to be kidding. It, it, it sounds like something invented by Ian Fleming or John le Carré. That was another holy shit moment. I was um, astonished that it went that far. And again, in the early stages of that reporting, there was a question of, like, really? Do we really have this? Is this for real? Initially, sources close to the Black Cube operation tried to deny that the most intrusive of the activity, including the use of agents with false identities, had happened. Then documents from an unnamed source started rolling in, including signed contracts confirming it was all true. I mean, it was really exciting. Suddenly this is a spy thriller where it wasn't before. I think we all had to take some deep breaths every now and then because these were explosive documents. Um, and we had to maintain our skepticism about, are they real? Are we being played? Is this part of the whole game? You start to get paranoid and appropriately paranoid, but you, you don't know if someone's feeding you documents that are intentionally misleading in order to trick you into publishing something that later turns out to be incorrect. It was another challenge for Fergus and the fact-checking department. We used a forensic firm to analyze the documents. Eventually, the parties involved, including the attorney who had signed them, confirmed their authenticity. And we were able to verify them, but that was quite an extraordinary thing. I remember you having told me when you were doing the reporting on the Weinstein story that you were nervous that there were guys waiting outside your apartment. And then after the fact, realizing, holy shit, that was really real. It was actually real. It was, there was, they actually sent somebody to, to stalk Ronan. Um, and again, that's when I get, you know, a... a defensive and angry and, you know, tightness in the chest, thinking, what the fuck, don't, like, who's doing this? And why would you do this to my reporter? It was unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing was unbelievable. Um, and But it, it, it made uh, those precautions that we'd taken seem even 
much too minor and much too small. It made clear that there were sort of no lengths to which uh, he or the people working for him wouldn't go. In a lot of ways, this story, the extreme tactics used to suppress it, the years and years it stayed buried, it's all a sobering reminder of the obstacles arrayed against the free press. But it's also a reminder of the people who stand up to defend the truth. The lawyer who didn't kill the story. I've never been asked to do something unethical. I'd like to believe I would walk out if someone asked me to do something I thought was unethical. I believe I would. As a lawyer, you should be willing always to walk out the door. And I just hope as people look at this story, they'll realize that uh, lawyers were instrumental in burying the truth and shutting people up and intimidating people. And they were also, and when I say they, I really mean Fabio Bertoni, instrumental in making sure that the truth could see the light of day. Yeah, and again, I can only do that because there we do in the U.S. have a robust First Amendment and we have a lot of case law that provides protections for the press. I didn't invent any of that. I'm just here to make use of it. What's the First Amendment there for if you're not going to use it? And the fact-checkers, who we need more of, everywhere. I think actually uh, about fact-checking being something that can combat the idea of fake news uh, or of distrust of the media. I just wanted to shout out fact-checking in the context of this larger project that is making a magazine and all of the... I feel like fact-checkers have gotten more attention in the Trump era for obvious reasons, but, you know, copy editors, art directors, social people who write the social media language, all of those steps are so essential in making a story like this work. And, of course, the editors. People have the, have the worst image of journalists, uh, you know, in a long time. I, I, I think it's fair to say that the, the uh, popularity ratings of, of journalism in general are not exactly soaring. I don't, maybe they don't even reach the, the numbers of, of, of members of Congress. I think this is a, a, an essential moment, a really important moment. Investigative reporting in this period, in the Trump period, has shown itself to be incredibly healthy and incredibly essential to all kinds of realms of life. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of guts to come out with a story like this. And unfortunately, there, as journalism is, you know, dwindling in the way as a profession, there aren't that many outlets that have those things that have the resources, the time, and the guts to do that. And that's a really sorry thing for our society as a whole. You recently had a daughter. What will you tell her someday about all of this? Gosh, I don't know. I'm just excited for her to speak in full sentences. <laughs> Be patient, Deirdre. <laughs> um... You know, we're several years out from the beginning of um, Me Too. We're, I guess, more than three years out from when this story broke. And I feel that our conversation around all of these issues is still evolving. Uh, and I'll be curious to see sort of where we are in, in 15 years when I'm talking to her about it. And I'm not sure what that conversation will be like because I think it will depend where the world is then. And I hope it's in a better place.
Next week on the show, the reason this is called the Catch and Kill podcast. We untangle the alliance between the National Enquirer and Donald Trump. You know, he was starstruck and he loved celebrities. So of course Trump is going to meet someone like Pekka, who is desperate for celebrity and fame and power. And it's, you know, it's a bromance made in hell, heaven, whatever. The Catch and Kill podcast is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and me, Ronan Farrow. It's produced by Sophie Bridges, Sharina Ong, Janelle Pfeiffer, and Unjin Lee. Our senior producer is Eric Mendel. Editing by Joel Lovell and Max Linsky. Pineapple's executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions, First Com, and Marmoset. Special thanks this week to Reed Black at Vinegar Hill Sound in Brooklyn and John Kavarek at Literati Audio. This is all based on reporting I did for my book, Catch and Kill, available where you buy your books and as an audiobook. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.